afraid if you need to go back. Um, we see this is time to leave. So <laughs> it wasn't very smooth, was it? <laughs> I'm already here. I'm already there. So I forget these little transition moments. Um, okay, guys, this is going to be, y'all are going to be, I hope you're going to be blessed. I wore my boots today. I was telling Chris that um, I'm glad he wore his boots because God's been walking on my toes all week. And this is, uh, that's the way God is, isn't he? When, he? when you start studying something, he just convicts you and just pounces on you and tells you, you got you to fix some things in your life. And this is, so this is what has happened to me as I study this. And uh, so we'll just buckle in. I think we're going to have a good time. <clears throat> Before we do anything else, I want to read the scripture. We're uh, going to be in Philippians chapter 1. In the next four weeks, Shannon's going to be out. He's going to he is going to uh, take some time and reflect and gather his thoughts and uh, hopefully come back refreshed for the fall. I think it's important for him to do that. Uh, you guys don't know that his preaching is not normal. I mean, it is not normal for a church to have that kind of solid teaching week in and week out with clarity and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We are so blessed to sit under a pastor that preaches the truth like he does. So we want him to have time to collect and rethink and God to give him direction. Okay, let's, let's read the scripture. Chapter 1, Philippians. So this, I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to try. And if I, y'all, I had a little bit of dental work on my lip and my teeth. Marcia didn't hit me. Uh, <laughs> she might have wanted to, but she didn't. So if I sound a little funny, that's the reason. Uh, if y'all have heard David Ring, I don't know, he's a great uh, speaker. You should listen to him sometime. I don't sound quite that bad, but we'll get through it. All right, here we go. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Can, uh, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear that throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach, preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. <clears throat> but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Man, that, we could just stop right there. Okay, but there's more. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers, 
and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will win, that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living, guys, that's the, you got to underline verse 21. That's the whole book. That's, that's Paul's message. If you don't have 21 highlighted, this is the place to highlight it. All right, verse 22. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I, I am torn between the two. I desire to, de to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, <clears throat> so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. What, this, is our whole, this is our verse, verse 27. This is where we're going to be today. Whatever happens, some of your verses, versions say only. I like only better. Only let your conduct, let you conduct yourselves <clears throat> in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. <clears throat> for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Amen. There's a lot of scripture, but it's a lot good. Okay, y'all. What is the, uh, where, what's the big deal about Philippians? Well, it's in the Bible. That's, that's a big deal enough. But there's some, there's some introductory material here. We're going to be talking about this book for the next four weeks. I thought I'd give you a little introduction. Um. <clears throat> Philippians is one of the four prison epistles. Paul wrote it uh, while he was in prison. He does, uh, you can see in the first chapter, he's faced with a choice to live or to die because very literally his life is on the line. They may execute him for treason, so he doesn't really know. But either way, he's fine with it. So he gives us a pretty important principle there. And who is he writing to? Well, look at the first verse. He says, to all the saints. I heard somebody, a little boy, I heard, I read about a little boy who asked <clears throat> what a saint was. And his dad said, what do you think a saint is? And he says, well, it's a bunch of dead people that they put in the windows to keep the light out. Whoa. Don't let that sink in too deep. That's not what a saint is. A saint is a Christian, okay? So if you're in Christ, you are a saint. So he's writing to the Christians. Now, the city of Philippi is kind of an interesting city. <clears throat> if you, you can see on the maps of Paul's missionary journeys in your back of your Bible that it sits right at the top of the Aegean Sea. This would be uh, one of the few times you look at your map. <laughs> you can see kind of where it's located. And you see that it's at the bottom of a mountain range, but it's at the edge of the sea. So it served as a key pass. <clears throat> and as Rome began to grow... They identified strategic cities throughout all of the area, and they would 
take those strategic cities and they would colonize them, okay? Now, Philippi was established by Philip of Macedon. You know who Philip of Macedon is? He is the father of Alexander the Great. It's a pretty, pretty important guy in history. But So it was a Greek city. But Rome, when Rome started to take over the world, he, they identified this as a, someplace they wanted to, to establish as a Roman colony. Well, how do, you, how do you make a city, a Greek city, into a Roman city? How do you do that? You just, you just don't pass out a piece of paper and say, here you go. I mean, this worked pretty good, but um, the Romans would take, this is typical uh, from what I read, they would take three, three or four hundred soldiers, veterans from the army, and they would take them and their family, they were, uh, you know, getting close to retirement from the army, and they would relocate them to whatever colony they wanted to establish, and they would <clears throat> establish them in that city as Roman citizens in that particular city. So as a Greek city, and Rome made it into a colony, it's one of its colonies, by putting its Roman soldiers there, them and their families, and they kind of started to develop that town right in the middle of the community. They would develop, they would start, they would live the Roman culture, they lived the Roman way, they lived the Roman lifestyle, and as there were so many of them, the, the, the culture, the community, began to look like Rome. Make sense? Began to look like Rome. And they were very proud of being a Roman colony. They were, all of Philippi became extremely proud of this. They, uh, they enjoyed self-government that Rome gave them. They enjoyed immunity. They weren't taxed by Rome. Man, that would be great. <clears throat> they enjoyed rights of the Roman citizens. These little colonies all over, all over the Mediterranean, all over the Roman Empire, were little fragments of Rome. They dressed like Romans, and they had the habits of Romans. So this church, this church in Philippi, was established in a Roman colony. Now, how did the church in Philippi become established way up there at the top of the Aegean Sea? Y'all are going to like this. In Acts chapter, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to summarize it real quick because we're not even through the introduction yet. In Acts chapter 16, Paul tells us that uh, he goes there and he preaches. And one of the places you go to find, he, he always started with the Jewish people in the synagogue. Philippi didn't have a synagogue. So they would gather at the river if they didn't have a synagogue. So he went to the river on Sabbath. And there were very few believers. As a matter of fact, there was only one family of believers at that time, and it was, her name was Lydia. So he preached to Lydia. Lydia believed. Her whole family believed. The church started in Philippi. The church was founded by a lady. Don't tell for Baptist that. <laughs> I'm kidding. The church was established by a lady. Sometimes we think that that can't happen. We got to, uh, ladies are terrific leaders in the church. And I, you know, we, the Bible clearly outlines some certain guidelines for leadership, but this is pretty cool, is it not? Lydia is definitely a hero of the Bible, establishing the Philippi church. So that's pretty exciting. Um, so the church is doing well, but Paul's still there. And as a result of his preaching, he's thrown into prison. However, Lydia and the church pray, and he's released miraculously. That's when the church is praying, and his chains fall off, and he's released from prison. So that's where that miracle happens. So the bond between Paul and the Philippi church is pretty special. They're pretty close, okay? All that to say, that's, that's kind of what the context is. 
he has a close tie with Philippi, and he's in prison, and they're worried about him. They don't want him, because he's in Rome at this time. He's not in Philippi. They want him. They don't want him to die. They don't want him to get in trouble. So he's trying to comfort them, give them an exhortation. And he does so here. But there's a heavy-duty principle first. This is our very first principle we've got to get. Principle number one comes in verse 21. It says, it doesn't matter what happens to me, whether I live or die. It doesn't matter whether I live or die. Only that Christ, because if I die, I get to go to heaven and be with Jesus. And if I live, I get to keep spreading the gospel. People keep getting saved. He says, that's what your attitude ought to be. That's what all of our Christians, as Christians, that's what our attitude ought to be as far as, as, far as being a Christian goes. So, pretty, pretty heavy-duty principle. And then, in verse 27 is where he starts to work out the practical details of it. So, let's, let's look at verse 27. All right. One more time. Okay, we got plenty of time. Well, maybe. We might get first, past the first sentence. It says, uh, okay, Paul starts out with the word only. Let's stop there. One word, only. Says, this is it, guys. If you want to boil the, the gospel, what's, what's really important, what I want you to get out of this, there's one thing, only. Make sure you get this above all else. It's kind of what <clears throat> Shannon preached about last week. It says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let your life be worthy of the gospel. Now, what does that mean? Let your life be worthy of the gospel. It has to do with letting your actions match your speech. Some people call that integrity. Some people call that integrity. Now, it's kind of struck me over the years, a little illustration about what we're to get into here, is at school, every year we had to begin with talking to the teachers about dress code. Students, teachers have to be talked to about dress code. I, I do not know why, but some teachers, mainly the younger ones, but there are a few older ones, uh, I don't know, 60s flashbacks or something, but they are, oh look, they dress like kids. You walk in the building and you look at them and you ask for their pass. I'm a teacher. You're a teacher? So they pull out their ID, yeah, you're a teacher. You can't tell them from the kids. You can't tell what teachers look like from the kids. It's really embarrassing. We don't want them to look like the kids. I don't want teachers to look like kids. It's important. It's good to be comfortable. I know that, especially in kindergarten, you've got to get down on the floor. You've got to do all that stuff. Bless kindergarten teachers. But, man, alive, I do not want these teachers looking like kids. It's really, and, and some of these young ladies come in, and they look like they're still in college, and they dress like they're still in college. And these young men don't need to be around that. It is not good. So we, we ask the teachers to dress like teachers, to professional, professional dress when they are um, teaching, when they're at work, so we can tell them apart. That's not hard to do, is it? You think? It is. It's a battle that we go on all year long. These leggings, these yoga pants. Okay, enough about the teacher dress code. The point is that as Christians, we have the same responsibility. We are Christians. Do we look like Christians? Do we act like Christians? Can somebody tell that we are Christians? He says, let your life be, let your conduct be in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's pretty important. If you're going to say you're a Christian, it's important that you act like you're a Christian. It's called integrity, right? Okay. Paul says, 
There's only one thing that matters. This is it. Let your conduct match your character. Let your conduct match your character. There is no greater witness than the Christian life. There is no greater witness than the Christian life. <clears throat> now, please understand this, y'all. The Christian life can only be lived by Christians. Amen? Don't forget that, guys. The Christian life can only be lived by Christians. This message is not for unbelievers. He doesn't expect unbelievers to live this way. This message is for the church, okay? And so, start with the, go back to the attitude in verse 21. Whether I live or die, it doesn't matter. Either one works out for me. That's a, that's a powerful message we have for the world. How we, how we die is, pretty, is a pretty powerful witness, but how we live is an even more powerful witness. So this message is, only, is meant for Christians, this exhortation. Without Christian faith, this message is futile. So we wanna, we don't wanna, we're going to talk about the cross here in a little bit. Unless a person believes in the gospel, what Paul's saying is not for him or her. So what does he give us? He gives us a principle. He doesn't give us a list. He gives us a principle. <clears throat> now, the idea says, conduct yourselves is a word that's associated with citizenry. With citizenry. Okay? It's something, he says, conduct yourselves as citizens of a polis, of a city-state. Well, it's the same thing the Roman colony did. They took the Roman soldiers. They put them in Philippi. They were living as Romans in a different city, in a Greek city. We are Christians. We are heavenly citizens living in a world... And we are to act like heavenly citizens. We are to dress like heavenly citizens. We are to speak like heavenly citizens. We have the same ideology as heavenly citizens. We are not to look like the world. We want to change the world through that. We want to be that salt and light wherever we go. And pretty soon as colonists, as the Roman colonists begin to take over the city, we too as Christians, living as colonists in this world, start influence those around us. I start to think, what are those people doing? They, got, they make sense. They don't have, they don't struggle with things like we do. Maybe they struggle with the same challenges, but they don't deal with them like we do. They have a tremendous support group. They have lots of support, and they face things with joy. That's not like the world. That's completely opposite the world. So, that's what we're called to do, is live as citizens of the kingdom. All right. It's not a, it's not a list, it's a principle. Now, Philip's translation has a really good way to put this. Philip says... <clears throat> We're to live in such a way that you are a credit to Christ. That you are a credit to Christ. I wonder if you can say that. If you can look in the mirror. I wonder if I can look in the mirror. I know what I see. I see somebody that struggles daily. I, I struggle. I know there are things that I do and say that are not credible to Christ. That's, sin, that's my sinful nature. I wonder if, how you struggle, how you see yourself when you look in the mirror. Are you a credit to Christ? All right. Citizens. What do citizens do? Citizens work together. They develop their talents and abilities for the sake of the community, for the sake of, the, of, of others. We work together for the sake of the community. We all join together for the sake of the community. We drive the speed. Do we drive the speed? Drive close to the speed limit. We observe, we observe traffic lights, you know, and we, we vote and we go by and we visit places of business and we talk to our neighbors and 
We, we work together for the sake of the community. We develop our talents and skills for the sake of the community. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I know when the church came out in the fall and worked on my house when I was recovering from surgery, the guys just divided up, and each one kind of did what they were good at. You know, that's the community. We have, I had one guy up there caulking windows, one guy sawing trees, one guy cleaning out gutters. Everybody was willing to help and use what they had to, to bless me, and it was a blessing. That's what a community looks like. That's what it looks like to develop your talents and skills for the community. That's what it means to be a citizen. Now, <clears throat> there's something else here. It says you've got to live as a citizen of the polis. What polis? What community? It says the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ. It means that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is salvation from the world, from sin and from darkness. It's not just that we have an added responsibility put on us. You know, all men walk, the world, walk this earth. All men live here. Christians are not unique. But we don't get thrown, something thrown on us. Well, now you're, you're, a, you're not only a resident of Rockwall or, or Faith. You're not only a, a citizen of the United States. You're not only born here in Texas and you have this job. But now you get to be a Christian too. We're going to add that on top of it. That's not Christianity. Christianity is something completely different. It says you are a new, the Bible teaches us Christians are a new creation. You have been created brand new. A new creation. It's your identity is first as a Christian. And then you get to do all the other things God lets you go and do. So your identity is first as a Christian. So do you look like, do you act like who you are and what you are? Or has the world conformed you to its image? You know, I used to wonder, I used to go in the Army and Navy stores all the time with Logan, my son, and he, uh, we would always look at the uniforms. They always have uniforms up. There's German uniform, and there's French uniform, and there's, you know, Italy's uniform, and, you know, all kinds of different uniforms. There's a Marine uniform, and the Air Force, and the Navy, all these different uniforms. Why are there uniforms? Why did the military decide to dress their troops out in uniforms. Where did that come from? Because it identifies them and it protects them. It identifies them and protects them. Where did this start? Well, it started with lords or these people of great power who lived a long time ago, and they, started with, they would go out into the community and they would look for young men who were willing to serve them, serve them to live according to their code. And so... They would dress them uniquely and distinctly. So these young men and young women would dress uniquely and distinctly in town. And why was that important? Well, one, it identified them as servants of this particular person. But it also told the community and the world that we're safe. As long as these guys are here protecting us, we're safe. As long as it gave a message to the world and to the community around that they're here we're okay. We know that they're not going to do such and such. We know they're going to act like this. We know we can ask them for help this way. We know that these uniform people will be a certain way, and we can depend on them for this. So it was a powerful, powerful message to send you out into the world by putting people in uniform. Not only that, it helps the enemy know that somebody's on duty. That somebody's on duty. It helps the enemy know that somebody's on duty. It tells the world, now, now let's translate that back to Christianity. We don't get to wear a uniform. 
kind of wish he did. I was, you know, I, I kind of wonder, that's where the priest, you know, the, the robes and stuff come from. Makes me, uh, maybe we should get collars. No, no. No collars. No collars. So, we don't get to wear a uniform. But, you know, do we get, do people know we're Christian? Do people know who we are? Uh, there's a good, good, well, it's a it's sort of a tragic section in Luke, in Luke chapter 20, verse 19, where Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, says, Jesus, should we pay taxes? Don't you wish he had said no? <laughs> Man, I do. So uh, he says, uh, okay, I get it. I know where you're going with this. Pull out a coin and let's see your coin. So they reach down their pocket and they pull out the coin. This is an old penny. But he says, uh, whose image is on the coin? And, of course, Caesar. And he says, you know, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. Don't you? The next question should have been what? The next question should have been what? Whose image is on you? Whose image is on you? Has the world made you look like itself? Or do you stand out as a Christian? Do you look like a citizen of heaven? Do, we, do people know you're a citizen of heaven? Do people know you're a citizen of heaven? There's a good story. Uh, it's, a, it's a novel. For those of you who are going to college, I hope you get to read it. I know you don't, but I hope you get to read it. It's called Dorian Gray. It is not a Christian story, but it has a tremendous, tremendous message. Dorian Gray is uh, in the story. It's written by Oscar Wilde who lived a horrible, horrible life. But I think some of the reality of what he struggled with was written in his literature. Dorian Gray was a handsome young man. Oh, my gosh. The way the book describes him, he, there was no, man, no, no person handsomer in the world. And he knew it. He was handsome and he was successful. And he really just worshipped himself. He loved himself. He loved the way he looked. And he had a portrait made of himself. Well... As the years, as the, as the months, he hung the portrait up on the, on the fireplace mantle, and as his life went on, you know, he was not necessarily a good person. He began to gamble, and, and he began to get into debt, and he began to lie and do some things. And one evening, he comes in after a little while, and he notices the painting has been blemished. Something's going on with the painting. It's not the same. He chalks it up as something, as a mistake in the oils, covers the painting because he doesn't want to look at himself anymore. Puts it in the attic. Well, the years go on, and he begins, he continues to live a horrible life, but his physical appearance goes unchanged. Physically, he's still handsome. Out to the world out there, he's still successful. He's still proud of who he is. He's still beautiful. He goes unchanged for many, many years. People around are just enamored with Dorian Gray. He is the most handsome, most successful person they could ever think of. Until one day he begins to wonder why he's not changed. He begins to wonder what's going on. What's the real story here? And he goes into the attic and he uncovers the painting. And there he doesn't even recognize what the painting looks like. All of the sin, all of the treachery, all of the horror that he's been living has been somehow transferred to the painting. And he's so terrified of what he sees and he's so shocked by what he sees he ends up committing suicide. He ends up killing himself. He, he can't handle it. Guys, 
That's what the world's doing. They don't get, they don't know what they're doing to themselves. They don't know what sin is doing to them. They have no idea what the, the destruction that they're putting in their own hearts and their souls. One day, the painting is going to be uncovered. One day, they will see themselves as they truly are and have to give a reckoning. As Christians, we've been made new. God has restored our painting. God has made us brand new. And it will never, ever be blemished. We know who we are. We are new creatures. We are made in Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. We're not in Buddha. We're not in Muhammad. We are in Christ. And we should live that way. We should show the world who we are by living as a citizen. That was pretty good, right? I know, Dorian Gray. You can, I don't encourage you to read the story. It's a terrible story, but it has such a great point. Okay, y'all. Uh, we see ourselves as we truly are. Only Jesus can restore us. That's a great truth. I love that. All right. Guys, you can't just talk the talk. You have to walk the walk. Talk is cheap, okay? It says, uh, whether I come or not, this is how you got to live. Okay, we're, we're, getting, we're getting close to the second part of this verse. How am I doing? All right, we're doing pretty good. All right, the gospel of Christ. He says, then, when I come to you or only hear about you in my absence, I know that you stand firm in the spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now, man, there's so much good stuff here. So, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? What does it mean to be standing, to live a life worthy of the gospel? It means to stand firm. Now, what does that mean, stand firm? Well, I can stand here. I'll, you know, I do this a lot at school. Stop running. Stop cussing. Stop. Just stand all day. I just stand there. I stand firm. So, assistant principal, y'all. This, I, if I have to break up a fight, I don't. Stop. Don't. And wait for the police to get there. Let them do it. So, I, but that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about what I do. Standing in the halls, monitoring. That's not what that's talking about. It's talking about it's a military term. And it means to not yield. It means to not yield. It's a military term. Now, y'all, I couldn't let this go. When I found out this is a military term about standing, about standing your post, about not yielding, my mind immediately went to like the most famous military post in the world. Y'all know what I'm talking about. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. All right? Have you ever been there? Y'all been there? We got to see the changing of the guard. It was incredible. It's an incredible thing to witness. If you ever get to go, it's awesome to watch. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. I did a little reading on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and the soldiers who guard it. It's a really, really unique group of men and women. There's been four. Um, since 1948, it's had a 24-hour guard on it. And uh, there have only been 662, as of 2012, which is when the article I, I could find, uh, as there were 663 guards of the Tomb of the Unknown. Now, when you get appointed to be a guard of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, it's a lifetime appointment. Sounds like you're being a Christian, doesn't it? You know where this is going. It's a lifetime appointment, okay? And they get to, they get to wear this badge, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier Guard. Tomb of the Unknown Soldier Guard. It's a very unique, and, and there was a law, they had to pass a law that once you get this badge, you can wear it all the time. You can wear this. You get to wear it. It's very unique. It's one of the most rare military honors to ever be given. So, but 
This is also one of the only military honors that can be revoked. John Hood could be revoked? I had no idea it could be revoked. Has it ever been revoked? Yes, it's been revoked. It's been revoked 23 times. I couldn't find the details of what happened on those revocations, but it can be revoked. If during your lifetime, whether you're in the Army or not, if during your lifetime you do anything that dishonors the guard, that disrespects the unknown soldiers that are buried there, if you do anything, if you live your life in any way whatsoever that's dishonorable or disrespectful, and the guard, the guard gets to determine what that is, they revoke that. They take it away from you. Man, guys, aren't you glad Jesus ain't like that? Thank goodness for forgiveness. You know, but that's the call that Christ makes to us. You have to live. You know, we get to wear the badge. We're Christian. We walk around the Bible. Christian, do we, do we live like it? Do we bear that name honorably? Now, this is pretty cool. Some other things about the soldier. I used to think they just walked. 21 paces this way, 21 paces. And they turn. They walk 21, they turn, they wait for 21 seconds, and they turn, and they wait for 21 seconds, and they walk 21 steps. Why 21? It's the highest military honors you can give a fallen soldier, a 21-gun salute. They say they picked 21 seconds to do that. He didn't know all that, did he? That's pretty good. Okay, so there's more, though. All right? They don't just walk. They just don't pace back and forth. Man, this is good. They don't, the soldiers who guard the tomb don't wear any rank. They don't wear rank. Why not? I, I was like, why not? Why don't they wear rank? Because they don't want to outrank the men who are buried there. Guys, as Christians, we don't outrank each other. We are all in this together, which is what Paul says in verse 27. He says, I know that you will stand firm and not yield in one spirit, in one spirit, supporting one another in unity. They don't outrank each other. You don't outrank each other. We stand together side by side as a, as a church. We support each other. There's more. I know there's more. The soldiers, they don't just don't walk in 21 seconds. They don't just wear not rank. They have to. It's their responsibility to engage anyone who threatens the tomb or dis, disrespects the tomb. If someone is loud and being disruptive, or they are doing something that they perceive as disrespectful to the unknown soldiers, it's their responsibility to engage that person. Not only do they protect the barriers, you can't come close here, you have to be respectful. And so they'll, if they hear, if they perceive something, they're to walk over, they're to engage the disruption, they're to quiet the disruption, and they're to resume their post right where they left off. They're to resume their post right where they left off. How does that work for us? This is, where, this, this is where my toes are still sore, guys. As Christian soldiers in God's army, we are to stand firm on our post always. It's a lifetime appointment. We just don't get to walk around. We just don't get to walk around with our weapon here. We, this is our sword, right? We don't, we don't just walk around. It's our responsibility to engage the city. It's our responsibility to engage those who are being disrespectful and dishonorable to the Christian church, to Jesus Christ himself. It's our responsibility to defend what the Christian church is. It's our responsibility to stand up, to stand firm, to engage the public and tell them the truth of Jesus Christ. 
You can't just sit passively. You can't just ignore it. You have to engage it. You have to engage the disruption. Is that awesome or what? It's hard. I don't, I don't, I have a hard time. I really have a hard time doing that. And I, you know, I'm thinking about my own job. And I'm sitting there listening to, I got to tell you, I got to be honest with you. Administrators and teachers, they use a lot of bad language. I do not like it at all. I quit using bad language a long time ago when God brought me out of a bad place and he super saved me. <laughs> That's my, guys, when he, when he brought me out of that mess, I was so sold out to Jesus. I was so done with myself. He, he showed me how bad I was. And I tell everybody, I was like, it was radically saved. I, I was changing the instant. My life crew teases me. They said I was super saved. Yeah. I, I, whatever it was, it was awesome. Okay. But being super, super saved or not, I still sit in those offices and I don't challenge when they use the Lord's name in vain. It's, I have to confess that to you. And I ask you to pray that I'd be able to challenge that, to defend that, to tell them that's offensive. To please stop saying that. To please stop saying, using Jesus' name in vain. They need to know that's not appropriate. And they're defaming the God of the universe. My Savior. Your Savior. The Savior of the world. That's what I need to do. I know that's what I need to do. God's told that to me all week. Will I do it? Lord, please help me. I don't know where you're at, but you have to engage people. You cannot be, you can't just walk around with the Bible. You can't just walk around with a Christian t-shirt. You have to engage people, okay? It's good stuff. Let's move on. Man, yeah. It's, I'm telling you, this is good stuff. Don't miss it. So here we go. Back to our, uh, back to our study of the Bible. We're to not yield. We're to have unity, uh, to be together. Thank goodness. Do y'all have Christians that you know at work or your school that you can walk together and support these are the times, these are the moments, because he tells us to, Paul tells us to, stand firm in one spirit, in unity. Now, why is unity important? Why is unity important? Well, it's important, one, because Jesus prayed for it in his prayer in John 17. He said, I pray that there may be one as you and I, as you, God and I are one. Jesus prayed for us to have unity. And Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. He expects us to be unified, okay? Not quarreling or argument. Now, how do you achieve unity? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. He tells us in chapter 2. I, Brian, man, I hope I don't. Brian gets to teach next week. I told Brian, I said, I may touch on chapter 2 a little bit. Here it is. So you may get it twice, but it's okay. So chapter 2, let's look over there real quick. How do you get unity? Verse 3 and 4, he tells us. Chapter 2. Look at what he says in chapter, in verse 2, by the way. He says, have the same love being one in spirit and purpose. Like-mindedness. This is it. How do you get that? Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility consider others but better than yourselves. Each of you, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's called being a church, guys. That's called being a church. I think about this merger that we're praying about, that we're looking towards. I pray this verse emerges as a truth that we can exercise, that we can display, that we can manifest in ourselves. We're not out this, we're not in this for the interest of others. We're in this for the interest of God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we're to live our lives. Okay? 
Is that pretty good or what? That's how you get unity. Uh, Dr. There's a story about Dr. Criswell. Have you ever been to the old First Baptist downtown? First Baptist in Dallas? I, used to, I went there a couple times. That's a cool church. I don't know if the old church is still there, but if you walked in, and they, they had red, like red benches, and they, in front of them had these kneeling benches. And they used to think, this is not a Catholic church. This is, why are they having kneeling benches right here? Well, I found out that the church, First Baptist Dallas, was under attack. It was being destroyed from within, a satanic attack. And Dr. Criswell had the funds, and he brought kneeling benches in one week. And that Sunday morning, church, fold down those benches and get on your knees. We're going to pray. We're going to gather together as one body. We're going to pray against this. And he told the church, get on their knees and pray. And that's where the kneeling benches came from. Is that cool? That's cool. That's what we have to do. We have to get on our knees and pray. I think that's, I just love that. It's just, if you have, talk is cheap, right? You have to do something about it. You can say something all day, but you got to do something. Sure enough, there it was. Okay, there's more. Got more. Okay. I know, we got to talk at the end, too. i got to try to finish this thing. All right, it says, uh, let's look at verse 27 again real quick. It says, all right, whether I hear about you, my absence, I know that you're standing firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. That word contending, some of your verses say uh, striving, your translations say striving. That is an athletic term. That is an athletic term. Striving, united against a common opponent. This is where, um, you know, there's a, there's a pretty big truth here. It's important to know who our enemy is. And as you know, a team can have chaos in the locker room. Some of y'all remember that. Football, baseball, soccer, get in the locker room and everybody's bickering and fighting. But once you get on the field, you're focused on the, on the enemy. You're focused on the opponent across the field. That's the thing that unites the team. Guys, we have to know who our opponent is. We have to come together. Um, together, we can strive together and we can uh, lift up the gospel that's how we're going to do it. So, sort of skipping over a few things. Striving is an athletic term. I do have one little bit of trivia. Um, that the straw man, y'all, y'all know straw man, like in the military, y'all put a straw man up and you can practice stabbing or whatever. Um, the straw man was invented because it's proven that to fight against an imaginary enemy is more effective than fighting against no enemy. To fight against an imaginary enemy is more effective for people than fighting against no enemy. But we don't fight against a straw man. We fight against the Satan himself and the demons that he has in his hand. And we fight against sin in the world, our own sin included. And we, but we, how do we fight? We fight together. We fight together. It's important. Yeah, when we get in our life group, we pray for each other. We lift up our struggles. When you get in a life group, I hope you have time to pray and lift each other up. When you're here on Sunday morning, I hope you find somebody. If you're struggling, if you're in need, if you have a hurt, if you're dealing with something that's overwhelming to you, I hope you find a brother or a sister in this room before you leave today and ask them to pray with you. Ask them to help you with it. You have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask for the wrong reason. You have to ask. You have to tell us. We're a church. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one family united in Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's up to us to take care of one another. That's how we strive against the enemy. Okay? Okay. That's, that's settled. <laughs> Pretty easy. Okay, y'all. There's more. There's more. 
says, uh, we're striving together for what? For the faith, not a faith, for the faith of the gospel. We've got to keep the main thing the main thing, right? Now, there's a good book out. It was written a long time ago. Called Neil, it's written by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's worth noting that Neil Postman, he studied, he's a pretty smart guy. He looked at our world and he said, he made this comment in the book. He said that Las Vegas has become a symbol of our national character. It's a city devoted entirely to entertainment. Our religion, our politics, our ethics, our news, our education, have been transformed into adjuncts of show business. The result is we are a people on the verge of amusing ourselves to death. The church is not immune, guys. We are not in the business to entertain people. We're in the business of glorifying the gospel, contending for the faith, contending for the faith, striving for the faith, standing our post, not yielding, confronting the world. That's what we're in the business of. We're not here to entertain. We're not here to make people feel good. Jesus said, I come with a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. That's what we have to do. We have to hold our sword. Pretty good. All right. Last, we're getting close, guys. We're going to land this plane, as Shannon says. Yeah, I know you don't believe me. <laughs> uh, so we're contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now, it's pretty important that he says... Uh, Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Verse 28. <clears throat> you know, I, I don't know why people leave the church. I don't, it, it's beyond me. If you're sold out the whole route, you're completely born again, Jesus has changed your life. Why people leave the church blows my mind. And I, I, I tried to understand a little bit about it, and I looked at the... Uh, because we're kind of focused on some of the military images that Paul brings out here. There's only one, there's, there are very few penalties in the military code of conduct that have the result of death. That is a possible end result of death. There are very few penalties. One of those penalties is AWOL, is desertion. One of those penalties is desertion. Man. We can't go AWOL, guys. You can't go AWOL. You don't have permission. God doesn't give Christians permission to leave. He says you have to go and gather together. You have to lift each other up in prayer. You have to, you have to serve one another with love and good deeds. You have to be prepared in season and out of season. You have to sharpen your minds. You can't go AWOL. There is no AWOL in the church. Don't leave. I need you. You need each other. We need... AWOL is off the table, guys. Do not leave, okay? If you're looking for a church where nobody goes AWOL, this might be your place. <laughs> so, don't leave, guys. Thank goodness God doesn't punish us by death. But I have to wonder if somebody's not involved in a fellowship, what's their relationship with Jesus like? Okay. So the question is, the question is, as we, as we wrap this thing up, as we wrap this thing up, I don't know if I have any really emotional stories for you, but I just have some truth to end with. Will you stand with, with me? Will you strive alongside me? Will you strive alongside Redeemer Church? Says, we must stand. 
we have our marching orders. You know, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, when, the, when they change the guard, they have to tell each other what the orders are. And they have to say, your orders remain at your post. Your orders remain at your post. That's, what, that's the orders. Your orders stand. We have our orders. Paul tells them to us right here. We're to live a life worthy of the gospel. We're to stand firm. We're to contend with one another in unity for the gospel. To know the truth. We're to be new creatures and to fight against the enemy. To engage. We're not to be afraid. We're not to be afraid. There's no reason for us to be afraid. I love what Dane said. It led right into what we talk about. Fear is not, of a, it's not from God. Fear is not from God. That is from the devil. That's from the enemy. But I ask you, to, I ask you today before we leave, are you living like Dorian Gray? Are you living? Have you, have you gone AWOL from the church? Do you realize the sin in your life? Guys, you can be born again. That picture can be restored if you give your life to Christ. He is the master painter. He is the ultimate artist. He can restore your life. He can take, he can take away scars. He can make you fresh and clean all over again. God, it feels so good when you get rid of all that sin and nastiness in your life. Drop that stuff. Let it go. It is such a heavy, heavy burden. The only person that can do that for you is Jesus Christ. Don't live for self. Live for Jesus. Let Jesus take away all those scars. Let Jesus restore you and let him give you new life. We as a church will walk alongside you. We will help you. We'll pray together. We'll strive and we'll stand. We'll work through this life together until God calls us home. Whether we live or die, it doesn't matter. It's all, it's all to the glory of God. That's our main principle, how we live and how we die. It's all for Jesus. That's all I got. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for teaching us today about what it means to live our lives worthy of the gospel. Thank you for the wisdom you gave Paul in the, the New Testament as he wrote these words. and It speaks to us so very clearly today. Thank you, God, for this church. I know we stand together. I know we strive together. I know we lean on one another. That's the testimony of the Holy Spirit working in Redeemer. I'm so thankful that we got to come together, God. I'm so thankful you brought me and my family here for the love that you support, that you pour out on us weekly, daily. Father, and I pray each of us that leaves here today that we, like the tomb of the unknown soldier guard, would not abandon our post, that we would engage others, and we would represent you as citizens of, king, of heavenly kingdom. Father, there's someone here today that needs a fresh start. There's someone here today that needs a new life like Dorian Gray needed. Needs to get that painting back on the shelf where it's beautiful again. Only you can do that, God. I pray you work in their hearts and minds. I pray that you would convict them now to give their hearts to Jesus. I pray, God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.